Welcome to Genomics Gupshap. Genomics Gupshap is an initiative by Map My Genome to create a community around genomics and to simplify genomics for everyone. And we do this by bringing together experts from allied areas like medicine, genetic counseling, research, nutrition, fitness, and more. Please join us as we spread the word about this exciting science of genomics. And we are now available on your favorite podcast as well. So just search for Genomics Gupshap on Apple, Spotify, Amazon or Google Podcast. So today we are on the 45th episode of Genomics Gupshap, and I'm so excited that we have somebody very special today, Dr. Sendurai Mani. He's an American, Indian-American oncologist, and he's a molecular biologist who's currently the Associate Director for Translational Oncology at the Legoretta Cancer Center at Brown University, and also a Professor of Pathology of Lab Medicine at Warren Albert Medical School at Brown University. He is known for his research on cancer stem cells and metastasis, and he was the first to demonstrate that cancer can make more cancer stem cells by reactivating an embryonic program known as epithelial to mesenchymal transition, or EMT. We'll talk a little bit more in the course of this discussion. And his research has also led to the development of new therapeutic strategies for targeting cancer stem cells and preventing metastasis. He's a highly respected scientist and clinician, and he has received numerous awards for his work, including the V Scholar Award from Jimmy Foundation for Cancer Research, the American Cancer Research Society, and the MD Anderson Research Trust Award. He's also the fellow of the American Association of Advancement of Science. He's passionate about making precision medicine available to everyone by combining clinical pathological and genomic disciplines to bringing personalized medicine to cancer patients. Dr. Mani, a seasoned researcher, is also committed to investigating ways to target cancer stem cells responsible for developing metastasis and chemo resistance. I've known Dr. Senura and Mani since MIT days and then also at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So Dr. Mani, it's an absolute honor to have you on Genomics Culture. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anu. Thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate uh, the initiative, what you are all doing. Um, this is a, a great uh, initiative to educate or uh, bring awareness to the public. Um, I thank you for what you're doing. Um, so, uh, um, genomics, yes, yeah. So, Doc, Dr. Mani, you have done a lot of work on many, many different things. But I want to understand when, when Dr. Mani was a little boy, uh, what got you excited into this, this whole you know, molecular biology and, and cancer and, and all of that? Uh, what, what inspired you to get into this journey of science? Thank you. Uh, the, you know, I, I really appreciate uh, this question. Um, I, you know, I am always curious. That's one thing which about uh, uh, about me is that I'm curious to know how things work. And uh, so when I was an undergrad, um, I was uh, I took an exam um, where um, I got the first mark in the class, even though even though I wrote the exam half in Tamil and half in English, wow. because it was an English college. It's a college. It was and everything was in English, but I wrote half in Tamil and half in English. The professor did not score me for English. Rather, he scored me for my knowledge. Wow. 
So that's when I realized that I can understand well, you know, English is a language which we can learn, but understanding a concept is a, it's a gift. So I was able to understand things better. So I realized this is probably the passion or road in which I should go. And then that's what I've been doing. That's great. So all our t-shirts say curiosity is in my DNA. Uh, so I guess, you know, it is in your, your DNA. And then how did, what happened? You went to, you were doing your undergrad and then you did your PhD and uh, then you went to the U.S. And, and uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about how that transition happened? Sure. Thank you. Um, so I completed my undergraduation at a, a, a college in Madurai, uh, which belongs to Madurai Kamaraj University. Um, so when I joined, I wasn't sure whether um, I would be able to survive because, you know, everyone was speaking an amazing um, English and this and that. But then when I joined, I realized that I could understand things better. So then towards the end of uh, my undergraduation, I wanted to pursue master's education. So I applied for a master's program to various schools, but I was fortunate to get into an integrated biology at Madre Kamaraj University, which is one of the very unique program uh, where you kind of, um, you get a lot of practical knowledge rather than theoretical knowledge. So there I was, I met with the two amazing individual um, and one person name is Venkat. Um, he kind of taught us how to think differently um, uh, to solve a science problem rather than thinking traditionally using a memory-based system. And which kind of fits well with my kind of an idea of analytical rather than a memory-based uh, memory system. Then I met another person with the name Pradeep Kumar Chalyo, um, who became my very good friend. And he became my, also became my mentor. So he helped me to explain things quite a lot and then devote a lot of his time to make sure that you know I go to the next level. So that's when I learned that there is a school called um, Indian Institute of Science, which is the number one uh, institute in the country in India um, for research and education. Um, so I applied to that uh, program for a PhD. There are 2,000 students all around the country apply, and they select only 20 to 25 um, out of that. And uh, again, I was lucky. Uh, that I managed to uh, get a PhD program into uh, the Indian Institute of Science. And I also was lucky to get a PhD under uh, somebody with the name Professor G. Padmanabhan, who was the director of Indian Institute of Science and some greatest, simplest um, uh, human being and a great scientist. And, uh, and in his lab, I worked for a PhD for three, four years or five years. Um, when I was doing a PhD, there was another professor also in the lab who was also co-mentored me. The name is Dr. Rangarajan. So when I was finishing my PhD, um, this was mostly on a biochemistry and a molecular biology, my PhD was. Uh, when I was finishing my PhD, um, they invited uh, Robert Weinberg uh, to give a talk at Indian Institute of Science. And uh, at that time, I went to the professor, Robert Weinberg. He was the first one to ever clone the first oncogene, the RAS, onco RAS oncogene, the first tumor suppressor gene, um, and the enzyme called human telomerase was cloned in his lab. And he was the first one ever to make a cancer cell in a lab by 
genetic manipulation. So he came to give a talk in India. I approached him. I asked him, can I come to his lab? Um, even before that, I showed him the work, what I have done for my PhD. And, uh, and he said, um, he was going to talk to me. And at that time, there was another professor uh, came and said uh, that, um, can I steal Bob for a few minutes? I said, okay. Um, so Bob said, Mani, I'm sorry, I need to go. I will be back soon. So they were supposed to come back in 30 minutes or an hour, but they came back after a few hours. I was waiting in the same place and Bob Weinberg recognized that I don't give up. So that's all was my interview was that he gave me an opportunity to go to his lab at MIT. So when I joined Bob's lab, you know, I did not know much about cancer biology. I knew molecular biology. Um, so I wasn't sure whether I will be able to survive in that lab. But luckily, um, over a period of time, I published a few papers with him. And those papers ranks or has the highest citation among all the paper Bob Weinberg ever published in his life. So I'm very happy and proud. So from there, uh, after spending a quite some time in his lab as a postdoc, I moved to MD Anderson Cancer Center um, as an assistant professor. And I spent 15 years there, got promoted from assistant to associate to full professor. Then I recently, nine months ago, I moved to Brown University. That's a fascinating journey. And, and, and I wanted to also tell some of our viewers that, you know, I've known Dr. Mani for many years, but I didn't realize how prolific an author he was and how much impact he had created. So for those of you who don't know all these uh, scholar profiles, uh, Google scholar profiles and their impact that he has, he has what they call as an exceptional, um, you know, H index and the I-10 index. So for those of you who are interested in research, you definitely must check out. And maybe, you know, we'll start off with, uh, you know, you talked a lot about things that people might not be very fully aware of in terms of the telomerase and, 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 and your, the paper that you were talking about. Uh, which maybe it will be great to maybe have a little discussion around what that was about and why was it so impactful uh, in the course of, you know, just understanding cancer as a science. Thank you. Um, so it was in 1998, 99, I started my postdoc work at the Weinberg Lab at MIT. Um, so right around the time, um, they were transforming human cells, normal human cells into cancer cells. So even before that, people did do transform normal cells to cancer cells. But when they did, they add a chemical to a normal cell, and then you convert a normal cell into a cancer cell. So when that happens, you have no clue what had happened inside the cell for that cell to become a cancerous. So, but that's not going to help us mm -hmm. to treat the patient because we need to know exactly what you need to make a cancer cell. So there was a postdoc at the time, he's a professor now at Dana-Farber, his name is Bill Hahn. So he took those cells, he introduced three set of genes. One is called SP40 early region, another one is called RAS oncogene and the telomerase. So why he did that? So the SP40 oncogene um, or, or tum uh, SP40 oncogene, which inactivates two tumor suppressors in the cell, it's called RB um, and P53. And then he puts an oncogene, just a HRAS, and then he puts a telomerase. So why do we need to do all these three? Um, in order for a normal cell to become a cancerous, 
Um, so there are multiple roadblocks they have to cross. One of them is, this is called a tumor suppressor. They've been stopping the cell going um, crazy. So you need to inactivate it so that the cell can become a, a tumor cells. But even if they get a tumorigenic ability, but they still need to proliferate. So that's where we we'll need to give this something called oncogene or mutation in an oncogene, such as HRAS. But even then, the cell has a limited lifespan because there's something called a telomeres, which keeps a clock, just like the way we live for a particular number of time. The human cells also has a particular number of days they can live or number of times they can divide. At that point, they have to die. And uh, they figured out that you need a telomerase to add a telomere. They got a Nobel Prize as well for that discovery. So then you add a telomerase, then you can make a normal cell into a cancer cell. So perfect. So that's when I joined the Weinberg lab. And most of the study, uh, another thing I want to bring uh, to the audience, your audience, is that there are three major types of cancers. There's a carcinoma, it's a sarcoma, and it's a liquid tumors. So we mainly focused on carcinoma, which account for more than 80% of all cancers, which includes breast, prostate, pancreatic, lung, liver, spleen, and whatnot. So in these tumor, when you put a SV40 early region, telomerase, and oncogenic HRAS, you convert a normal cell into cancer cell. But those cancer cells, when you put them, let's say breast cancer cells into the mouse breast, they form a tumor in a mouse breast, but they don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Cancer patients don't die because of the breast cancer alone. They die if they have a metastasis to a different organ. So that's when I got curious why these cells form a tumor locally, but they don't go anywhere. So I started researching, um, working with another uh, colleague at the time, my name is Jing Yang. We figured out that in order for these cells to go from one place to another, they need to break something called cell cell adhesion. Because most of the epithelial cells are, uh, they are attached with one another through various cell cell adhesion molecules. When these cells become a cancerous, that transformation does not break the cell cell adhesion. Rather, they're still attached. That's why when somebody develops a tumor, they tend to be benign or local. Mm. And at some point later in the course, they become migratory, invasive, and metastatic. So the way the tumor cell achieve that by reactivating an embryonic program called EMT. So I'll just to summarize what is EMT. So it's called epithelial to mesenchymal transition. So upon fertilization, the first cell which forms is called epiblast. These epiblasts are epithelial cells. They eventually undergo this EMT or epithelial to mesenchymal program and generate something called a mesoderm. And the same layer also creates an ectoderm and endoderm without an EMT. So the mesoderm gives rise to heart, blood, kidney, ovary, and various organs in the human body. So this play a very, very, very vital role during embryo development. It's off once the embryo is formed and mostly get turned on during wound healing or during fibrosis. Smartly, the cancer cells reactivate this program to make cancer cells migrate from one place to another. So that's the way we figured out that EMT program play a vital role in making a tumor metastatic from one place to another. 
So that's what has happened when you, so you're saying that one, your cancer cells, cells which were, let's say, originally in the breast or somewhere, they are there, but because of the CMT, they managed to move across uh, to other organs. And that's where that whole process is called as metastasis. Right. I, yeah. In addition, one other thing. So one other thing, which when let's say a, a pathologist looking at a tumor in a lung, they can figure it out right away just by looking at a tumor in a lung. They can say whether the tumor belongs to the lung or they have come from breast or prostate or pancreas just by looking at something called a histopathology. In other words, they create an organ similar to where they come from. So that I hypothesized that the cells not only become mesenchymal so that they can gain migratory capacity and also become a stem cells. So this allows them to recreate an organ histopathologically similar to where they come from. So that is what my one of the major contribution, which uh, you know uh, uh, the one you were talking about, made a huge impact in the cancer field. That's fascinating. I think you know you you had also mentioned. I remember uh, in your TED talk uh, about you know how do you consider a cancer? You know the whole thing as uh, a car. Maybe you can explain that a little bit more uh, to the audience. Because I found that really, you know, it was very succinct and very easy to understand. You're talking about oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes as well as the telomerase or the fuel. And maybe it'll be great to understand it from you, uh, how, why you consider that. And also, I think now that you are talking about this whole migration thing and, and understanding it, I was thinking about it from, you know, maybe when you're looking at it, let's say, you know, I'm a I'm from Rajasthan. I now live in Hyderabad, right? So in some ways migrated somewhere. You can still look at your genes and figure out you know, ultimately where you're from. Like you said, the histopathologist finds out. Maybe is there some way we can sort of simplify your analogy a little bit further and, and that that would be great. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you again. So with respect to the car analogy. So you know, every car we do, the car do have a brake and you have an accelerator and there's a gas tank. This is three or the major ingredients for, you know, car to go, stop or stop permanently when you run out of gas. It's very similar. So the tumor suppressor is almost like a brake where it's constantly telling the car when you go fast, you just apply a brake, then you slow down or uh, when you want to go fast, you apply, uh, uh, press a, uh, on a gas pedal and you go faster. And that's an oncogene. So imagine a car which is going full speed on a normal speed and uh, you have a gas tank and the gas is kind of, the car is using it, um, keep moving. So when the gas tank runs out, again, the car will stop. But at some point, imagine the brake is broken, which is a tumor suppressor, which is no longer functional. And your gas pedal is kind of nothing happened. So then still the car will stop at some point because even though you don't have a brake, you're going to keep running for some time and going to stop. Because the fuel is over. Oh. Fuel is going to run out. But imagine you kind of, the brake is broken. Well, somehow for some mechanism the gas pedal is continuously on so you're going to run very fast but still you're going to stop at some point 
because you're going to run out of gas. Now think about a third scenario where you don't have a brake, you're continuously pressing an accelerator, but most importantly, your gas tank has an ability to refill itself on a constant basis. So at that point, the car is not going to stop. It's going to keep going and going and going and going. That's what happens in a cancer where you need to do all three. So this is where, you know, many times people ask me, I have a mutation in my tumor suppressor gene, like a BRCA1. Will I get a cancer? So I tell them, you are high pro highly prone to develop a cancer, but you will not develop a cancer just because you have a mutation. Because that makes them prone, but not for sure. So, so that's how a normal cell become a cancer is because you need to inactivate tumor suppressor gene, activate an oncogene, and constantly fill the gas tank with the telomerase. So, um, uh, so you're saying that this whole, uh, you know, if you're filling it up constantly. If, what if it was an electric vehicle? I'm just taking you completely off track now. <laughs> a solar panel on the roof, yeah. and then you are, you know, as long as you have a sunlight, you keep going, okay. right? And then keep going, and then, uh, so that's what uh, the cancer does. It kind of activates its own machinery. Just one enzyme, telomerase, activate. And most of these genes, um, I remember you talking about epigenome in one of your previous episodes. Most of the genes are kept silent through epigenetic mechanism. Now, you overcome that by epigenetically modulating the expression of telomerase. Mm -hmm. So now it's, it's continuously on uh, the telomerase, which adds a telomere. The telomere is the clock gene which decides the shortened the telomere. So every time when a cell divides into two daughter cells, the telomere length shrinks. So that goes shrink, shrink, shrink. And some point the cell senses, I have a very short telomeres. I should not survive anymore. The cell commits suicide. Mm -hmm. It's called apoptosis. Now, if there is a way you can add telomeres to the end and the cell is not even going to know that they have a shorter telomeres or the mm -hmm. cell has already gone crazy, and on top of that, the cell also lost the tumor suppressor genes, in this case, RB and P53, for example. And they are the one who sense whether there is a shorter telomere or not, so that the cell need to die. So the sensing mechanism is gone, and the clock is continuously on. So that's the way the normal cell become a cancer. And then you also asked about um, how the migration, right? Can we do a genomics to figure out the migration pattern? Beautifully, uh, you know, it's a very nice, amazing question. I'll tell you why. Because until now, a pathologist look at a tumor in a lung and then by them understanding whether that tumor has created an organ similar to breast or prostate, they make a call whether this is a tumor from breast or prostate. Now we have a new set of pathologists, a molecular pathologist. So who not only look at a histology of the organ, but do the genomic test. So by doing a genomic test, you can figure out at high accuracy, 
whether that given tumor has come from a breast or prostate or where, whatever the organ. In addition, through genomic approach, which you guys are doing, you could also identify vulnerabilities. So what is a vulnerability? So now we have a number of drugs for these oncogenes. They get, the tumor cells get addicted to the oncogene. And through genomic approach, you can figure out, are these tumor cells addicted to that oncogene? This oncogene, we have hundreds of oncogene, and we have a drug for many of them. And if you know exactly which oncogene this cell is addicted to, then you give a drug for that. So then you deprive them from that addiction, and they come out, they die, basically. So essentially, you want cancer cells to die. And in order to do that, you are either looking at the, you know, figuring out how to stop that addiction that the oncogene might be providing to the other thing, or you want to maybe reduce that fuel that you mentioned, or maybe you know, somehow the get back the tumor suppressor back up, right? So these are the three options that we have. Um, so which one, in your opinion, is the most uh, fascinating for, for you in terms of, you know, the biggest chances of you know, converting, like you mentioned, we you talked about from normal cell to cancer cell, but from cancer cell to normal cell, is that, uh, or rather to kill the cancer cell, which is the most interesting approach uh, from a, from your point of view? So, you know, reactivating a tumor suppressor gene is very hard. And people are trying that um, uh, through various uh, uh, genetic engineering approach where you can reintroduce a normal copy of a tumor suppressor gene, then you can put a brain. That's a genetic um, editing uh, approach people are taking, which is a tougher route because if you have a million cells, you need to do the editing in every cell, right? Now, telomerase is another approach a number of people are doing, which is again, great, but there are some drugs which are coming up, but the easy route, which seems to work, is the, the addiction, yeah. right? If you deprive the addiction, they die. But what happens in this process is that when you deprive them of, let's say you have a million cells in a small tumor, and then you deprived, and many of them, let's say nine, uh, quite like a 0.9 million cells, let's say, are addicted to this, this particular oncogene, you kill them off, the small percentage of them figure out a way to activate a different oncogene. So while you kill the cells which are addicted, there's a new clone evolves during that process. That's where the, the, the current therapy targeting the oncogene works very well, remarkably well. But relapse is the most common problem among these patients because it gets turned on invariably, uh, but you know they get to live longer compared to the traditional chemotherapy. My dad used to tell this uh, that you know there was this whole um, mytholo mythological creature, right? Where you you kill something, but that again comes back up, right? Like I'm trying to remember which which way, which uh, mythological creature, but I think it was somewhere with Durga, or I don't remember, but those little Kali, I think, where you had these things that kept coming back up. Right? So in some ways, I think we are still learning a lot about how these are happening, and and hopefully we'll get to a point where. Some of these newer techniques like um, that they are coming up, hopefully they'll become a lot more understood, but that won't happen unless we learn or understand the science behind it. Right? 
very well said the, the, the most important thing is for example olden days people were scared to give more than one therapy to a patient it used to be monotherapy now we have come to two three and then people are now talking about cocktail so when you know the tumor has a five mutation mm-hmm. you can target all five mutation um and and from a research point of view are you also seeing a lot happening you know you mentioned that each cell you want to understand more so are you seeing a lot more happening on the looking at individual cells and learning what is going on in each of those because uh, clearly i think there is a lot that is happening on the single cell and and understanding that few years ago i think you had to still see it under a microscope you had to do you know the laser capture and a few other things but now i think we are seeing more molecular ways of doing it right i think you are uh, you are probably the one who probably knows a lot about these areas of research that are going on but i know we might be digging in into too deep but maybe it would be helpful to just get a little sense of what is happening in that space thank you so many years ago what we did we took a tumor we ground the tumor just after you grinding it you figured out you know what is different in the tumor compared to normal tissue it gave us some information but then it didn't tell us exactly let's say you have 1% of the tumors or the bad tumor cells and the remaining 99% is a daughter cells they are not bad but they are just a daughter cells but that 1% was buried inside the 99% but we were able to get some idea at the time with the global sequencing so then we went to do something called single cell sequencing where if you have a million cells you sequence all the million cells or at least um, a representative clones and you figure out that these cells probably made of this tumor is made of 10 different kind of tumor cells uh, and the immune cells and all the cells which supports the tumor um, then you go and target them differently so now we are into a something called a spatial transcriptomics where we not only get a single cell information but spatially imagine a tumor cell sitting and then there's an immune cell sitting next to it we know an immune cells are supposed to kill the tumor cells so that's true when a tumor starts but over a period of time the tumor cell convinces immune cells that i'm your friend don't kill me so now immune cell even though sitting next to it it doesn't kill the tumor cells in addition the tumor cells makes the immune cells undergo something called exhaustion in other words make them tired so they not only cannot kill the tumor cells they are tired most of the time because the tumor cell sets up now by doing the spatial transcriptomics we not only trying to understand whether the immune cell is sitting next to the tumor cell how is the immune cells is it exhausted if it is an exhausted can we make them um um sensitive or maybe reactivate them so that now they can go and kill the tumor cells sounds cool it's it's fascinating how this whole thing we can now sort of get a nice inner view into what is happening you know in cancer now crazy now before we get on to uh, understanding a little bit more over there i just wanted to maybe you know it will be a good time to for those of those people who don't understand you know because of uh, the difference between what is hereditary uh, genetics like what you inherit versus what happens in a cancer uh, in the case of cancer where 
you know, things might change over a period of time. I think just maybe it'll be helpful, uh, you know, sometimes when we are looking at it from understanding the risk, like you were talking about, we are mostly looking at it from uh, what you inherited from your parents. But in the case of cancer, there is a lot that is happening within those specific tumor cells uh, that is going on. And I think that's why it's so important to be able to understand what is really happening, how is it transforming, and, and each part is different. And therefore, they say that you are not just having one cancer, you are cancering. And like you mentioned, there's so much happening in, in this space. So I think, you know, maybe you could explain to us what is, you know, what is, uh, you know, for each of these different cancers, is it um, genetically, is it, you know, is there a different thing that is happening? Or maybe, you know, we can save that for a, for a later time. Just maybe say it in a one, two words. Um, there's a sporadic mutation. There's a hereditary mutation. So hereditary mutation contributes to around 5% of all tumors, right? Some, again, you know, somebody has a mutation in a gene called APC or BRCA1. So they tend to develop tumor through their lifestyle. In other words, if normal person and then a person with the mutation lives in a particular environment, and both get exposed to similar chemicals, similar food, similar lifestyle, then the person with the mutation will tend to develop tumor faster than the person without a mutation. But just because they have a mutation, it's not that they're going to develop a tumor. It's extremely important to study the genomic profile from like in a company like yours, um, so that would allow that somebody to know whether they are prone to develop a tumor or not. So based on that, one could adjust their lifestyle. Um, so, so I think another thing I wanted to maybe you know talk a little bit about was about cancer incidence. Right? Um, we are clearly living longer now compared to maybe even 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but that also means that, you know, given that cancer typically happens at a later age. We are seeing also increase of ca cancer incidence. But is it a matter of only that because we are living longer or is the, you know, is the change in terms of incidence a factor of uh, the fact that we are, we are, we understand that there is more cancer going on. We are able to detect cancer or maybe is it something else, right? Do you see a change in terms of, you know, what is going on in, in the world, I think you are in, in the US, but also maybe if you have a understanding of what is happening in India, because you know when I look at the statistics, it, they used to say one in 10 and then one in nine, now they're saying one in eight is likely to have uh, cancer. So why is it that suddenly we are seeing this increased incidence uh, of cancer uh, when there is so much that is also happening on the, uh, you know, on the molecular side and, and understanding on the diagnostic side as well? Maybe you can. Thank you. you. Thank you. You 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 articulated all the the reason. Um, so as you rightly said, that we do live longer. So therefore, um, so the probability of cell gaining a mutation over a period of time, you increase the probability because if someone lives for forty years, their cell would have divided x number of times. But if somebody lives eight years, that double the number of times the cell divides or kind of get exposed to various um, um, insult over a period of time. So living longer definitely adds more cancer incidence. 
And then on top of that, um, um, the lifestyle, right? We all have, you know, for example, in India, you know, when I was growing up, I did not even know much about allergy, but now allergy is very common. So our lifestyle and then eating all kinds of junk food, I would say, um, and each one of them going to insult our genome. Mm. So when you are insulting the genome with the uh, inflammation, so there are two kinds of inflammation, acute inflammation, chronic inflammation. Acute inflammation is good for us, but chronic inflammation is not. If somebody smokes, they are chronically creating an inflammation in their lungs. Somebody drinks alcohol, they are chronically creating inflammation in their liver. And uh, so things, if you somebody is eating like a very spicy food chronically, they are creating chronic inflammation in their stomach. So the chronic inflammation kind of causes a second problem. So lifestyle, right? That matters. And the third, the most important thing is in olden days, somebody want to detect whether they have breast cancer, they have to develop a breast cancer for them to know whether they have breast cancer or not. But now you go and get a mammogram and uh, even before it can be kind of detected by any other means, the mammogram detects breast cancer. Now you have a genomic testing. You can detect by looking at a mutation or circulating tumor DNA whether somebody has a tumor or not. So adding all these four factors, we are able to add more number, but one should not worry because of this number. One should feel happy that I have a proper testing approach these days. So I should get tested early so that breast cancer and prostate cancer in the US, if it's detected early, the success of survival is almost 99%. So one need to get tested early rather than uh, um, late. Absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, we keep trying to tell people that information is not going to make your cancer come or go. Information can make it, make you more aware and therefore you take the right kind of, uh, you know, you go to your doctor faster. And I think a doctor can do a lot more for you when you go there early uh, versus when you go there at stage four, when by the time is when your metastasis has already happened, right? And then it's harder. So I think that's something that most people think that, you know, if they don't know, then ignorance is bliss, but it's not necessarily the case. You mentioned that 99% have, uh, you know, have a positive thing once uh, they go to a doctor early with, with breast cancer. I think similarly, I think for other cancers also, we are seeing a lot more better survivals when they come to see a doctor early. And you also mentioned a lot about lifestyle-related risks that uh, that are there, uh, and people didn't don't necessarily believe. They always think that you know cancer means you know if it's in your genes you will get it, but that's not true. And and I think I I read a study which was a fairly large study which said that almost fifty percent of those cancers may be preventable. Right. So uh, do you do you believe that that's true, or uh, you think that the you know People can, if they were more aware, they could prevent more cancers. Yes, so that's what I've been promoting. Um, you know, awareness is the key. Awareness is the key. Um, um, and then taking an action, right? And somebody says, yes, drinking alcohol can create more inflammation in my liver. I may develop a liver cancer. But, you know, being aware and doing a precautionary measure versus 
I know I'm going to get a potentially may get a liver cancer, but I'm still going to drink alcohol, mm. right? So it's an attitude comes at the end. Uh, those who care, they take the preventive measure. Those who don't care, they continue with what they want to do, and then they cry at later. At, at some point, things happen, and oh my God, I should have stopped earlier. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, you know. Hopefully, awareness will will increase as as we go along. So uh, one of the things that, for for instance, you know, we do a genetic predisposition. We help people understand that. But uh, I remember the first time, you know, it was a friend of mine who got this test and said, um, you know, they got a risk for lung cancer. Right now, the first like reaction at that point was, oh, uh, he was coughing. It must be lung cancer. And I, I explained that that is not. You know, coughing can be due to many other things, but it was not about telling, scaring you that you know this is something that is there. But it was more about saying that if you look at the kind of things that you do, whether it is smoking or other things, that's a lot of risk that you can take out from your possible diagnosis, right? So when someone finds out what would be, uh, you know, from a genetic test that they are at risk, let's say they are only twenty-five, thirty years of age right now. And they find that they have a risk for, let's say, you know, uh, and a curable cancer like a breast cancer, or let's say something that has lower survival rate. What do you think should be the, you know, what would be the next steps for those uh, those families or somebody who's just found out uh, that they have a risk for some uh, some potential cancer? So again, somebody they have a mutation which kind of predispose them to a cancer but that doesn't make them cancer exactly. right they don't allow it's not that they're going to develop cancer so the minute they come to know it's a good idea to take a precautionary and preventive measure so angelina julie went and for example she did a mastectomy um as soon as she came to know that she has a mutation in her braca1 gene and one need not go to that extreme but one could do like for example at that point you know think about include exercise in their lifestyle include a healthy diet in their lifestyle include happiness in their lifestyle because most of the time stress causes a lot of you know additional mutation as well so one need to reduce the stress so those are all will be beneficial when they come to know this but if they don't know they are going to keep doing what they do they are going to literally a car running without a brake mm-hmm. That's what the mutation in this tumor suppressor gene is nothing but. So they still have an option for a gas tank to run out. But why? You know, if you can figure out a way to, you know, go on a right road um, and uh, figure out you apply less gas rather than more gas, then you still go slow. Rather than, uh, you know, you apply full gas, well, you know, there is no brake. Mm-hmm. So that's what you your company is doing, telling the people that, you know, your brake is gone. So be careful. You apply gas a little bit. Be careful. You know, uh, live long, uh, healthy life rather than developing a tumor uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a short span. Absolutely. I think you put it so beautifully, so easily. Uh, so hopefully, I think you should definitely, I think, understand this whole car analogy and, and, and how this, uh, you know, how you can actually make those changes in your lifestyle. And I think those changes can ultimately result in a better, your car going in, in the right direction, in the right place at the right time, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
So maybe we can move to like the microbiome. I think you have done some research in microbiome as well, right? May, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what is the connection between microbiome and, and cancer, uh, if there is any? So, so the microbiome um, is one of the most important element in our human body. I think we have something like 36 trillion cells and 36 or 38 trillion bacteria or microbiome, um, uh, not bacteria, microbiome in our body. So they all work together in, 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 a, in a very uh, symbiotic way. So when you go and disrupt the symbiosis, you do create problems. For example, um, olden days, people would think twice before giving an antibiotic. Now, for anything and everything, they just give an antibiotic. And you just wipe out the microbiome, right? And then the microbiome needs to be reconstituted. In olden days, we all used to take milk uh, or yogurt, not milk, the yogurt. Now, we drink or take yogurt, which are sterilized, which is a yogurt, which is made into yogurt through microbiome, but they kill the microbiome so that they don't continuously grow and spoil the yogurt. So you get a yogurt, which has no microbiome. So you are not reconstituting that microbiome, which is good for your body. So, so this is where um, there was a beautiful talk last week I listened to by somebody with the name Gordon Freeman who discovered something called PD-1 and PDL one which is a very important uh, drug target now uh, for immunotherapy. Um, so he gave a talk. Uh, he's my good friend and a collaborator. So he was saying that you give a patient an antibiotic, then give an immunotherapy. And to another patient, you don't give an antibiotic, give an immunotherapy. Guess where it works better? The patient who did not receive an antibiotic. So the microbiome do help the immune cells to kill the tumor cells. If you ask me how, we are trying to understand it. But it's clear, the data says, microbiome is a very important player in various aspects of our human life. Mm -hmm. So all those who are listening, I would strongly recommend that reconstitute your microbiome if you ever have to take an antibiotic. And when you reconstitute, use a yogurt. <clears throat> That's plenty, but not a sterile yogurt which you buy in a store. A homemade yogurt uh, would be perfect. I was just going to say that maybe you, rec you recommend that we make our yogurt at home and, and eat it. That's how we have always done. I remember even when I was living in the US, uh, I remember that you know one of our aunts, we went to her house, got the yogurt and made sure that we were making our own yogurt. Of course, occasionally you can, you know, I used to buy store-made yogurt, but I think on an average, on a regular basis, I think you still eat the homemade yogurt. And if you buy, products. yeah, if you buy from a store, there is something called a live and active culture. Yogurt with a live and active culture would be okay. But again, they don't really give you spectrum of microbiome because they add selective species, yeah. but yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I think now we are also trying to get people to understand which probiotic will work for them based on their microbiome, you know, so that they can actually take that probiotics, prebiotics. But I think naturally, I think if they can include some fermented foods and other things, I think it's always, always better. Um, so uh, 
you know, a lot is also today, a lot is happening in terms of AI in, in medicine. So uh, do you think that, you know, especially given that cancer is so complex, uh, do you think that, you know, using AI in cancer uh, will help us in understanding this science better? Or do you think that there is still a lot more we need to do to understand, you know, the actual biology for individual cells before we can really transition into using AI? So it's a very important question, and thank you for asking that. So um, it's a parallel universe. So one need to understand the tumor better because that is going to help us to understand how the tumor has become rogue, right? But human mind cannot comprehend all the information what we are getting. Um, so somebody who's studying a tumor suppressor, when you talk to them about something else, while they may know, they may not know, but it becomes too much information. So, uh, you know, when I was starting my PhD, there were like a 20 different journals which were publishing cancer-related stuff. Now, probably 20,000, I, I don't know. There are too many. I don't even know. I cannot keep track of how many journals out there publishing paper in cancer. So you don't even know. So there is not even a single soul can read all those papers, put them in mind and understand how things work. So this is where AI will be extremely helpful. So I do have a company. I started a company. It's called Ilon Precision Oncology. So what Ilon does is that let's say a patient has a mutation um, in a tumor and they have a 50 mutation. Not all oncologists would know among those 50, which is the dominant mutation. In other words, which mutation the tumor is more addicted to. So we need to target that. Then AI approach will help. But in order for AI to work, you need data. So what the island does, it uses or it takes help of an experts who does, uh, who does this day in, day out. They are academic physicians. They do research in the lab. They treat a patients in a clinical trial. So we take their help. We get information. We give them this 50 mutation. And they look at it and say, okay, this patient may benefit from drug A targeting mutation 10, for example. So we feed that information into AI. So over a period of time, we would have got a lot more information as to if somebody has this kind of mutation, what drug they may benefit from. But today, we have not. So radiation, um, uh, there are uh, pathology, uh, there are immune cells. So many factors will need to add them into this AI to come up with a, a kind of a solution uh, which would help the cancer patient. So both are extremely vital and need to go in parallel. So, so before we use AI, we also simultaneously need to use NI or natural intelligence of Thank you. experts uh, like yourself, actually, to be able to understand and, 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 and give that um, information to the patients or, or the physicians that are there. Uh, I know that you know there are so many things that I can I can ask you about, uh, but you know there is one thing that we find, which is uh, at least in India, that um, a lot of times most people most doctors are familiar with like a BRCA mutation because you know thanks to Angelina Jolie, uh, but um, you know if you had to name maybe four other mutations um, or four or five that you like 
or 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 like to research on rather not like as in want to have but um what would those mutations be for you know if you can take any cancer or, or any mutation that is there so there's a mutation called apc um um uh, it's called adenomatous polyposis uh, uh, coli something like that apc how do you remember these names <laughs> <laughs> so the apc patients with apc mutation tend to develop colon cancer um uh, and uh, of course braca1 there's a braca2 there's a one particular mutation which is really kind of difficult to target which is very bad which is called p53 so which is also tumor suppressors every one of them are tumor suppressor the mutation tend to occur in a tumor suppressor in case of hereditary cancer so P53, there is a patient uh, uh, had a, a tumor in one organ and then they treated that and then the same patient developed a tumor in a different organ. They treated that and then they developed a, a tumor in a different organ. So when the P53 is, is supposed to be called a guardian of the genome. And uh, so when you somebody has a mutation in P53, they tend to develop all kinds of tumors. So it's very important to figure out uh, somebody has a P53 mutation. There's something called retinoblastoma or RB gene. They tend to develop uh, retinoblastoma. So we can go on. The, the list goes on. But these are the, 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 the dominant one. Yeah, I remember. I think P53 is extensively talked about in, even in Siddharth Mukherjee's book uh, for you know understanding of, of cancer and how it was, you know, and the discovery of the whole molecular mechanisms as well. So, um, so what are your predictions in terms of the future of genomics in cancer care? So, this is like, you know, we say bread and butter, right? This is one of the most, most, most important thing which happened is the genomics. So, when Eric Lander was sequencing the human genome, when he proposed the idea, everybody kind of laughed, like, you know, it's not possible. But then... I remember I was a postdoc at the at the time at the Whitehead Institute. There was a one big building where so many robots are breaking the human genome into small pieces, putting them in a bacteria, sequencing them, and bringing them, putting them in a supercomputer at that time, um, and then assembling the data into create a gene signature or or the genome. But now we can do that like. You know, you can send the DNA and you guys probably can sequence the genome for a thousand people in one day, right? Um, we, are, we are in a different era. So it's keep evolving. And the price also dropped from 100 million to probably $1,000. Maybe it's going to go down even further. So, so genomics is really, um, it's like a cell phone of cancer care, right? So olden days, communication was a big deal. But now everyone has a phone. It's almost like that. The genomic information, very soon people will understand easily uh, the genomic information. My mom, who never went to school, she's talking about genes. So uh, that's the way things are going to go. Um, the information is going to flow. I think both has to go in parallel. Genomics is a, it's a central to, in my opinion, to uh, our understanding of cancer uh, going forward. And, and I also... You know, moving to a completely separate uh, topic, I, I also saw one uh, talk that you had done, which was about social determinants of health 
and how they play a role in cancer. Can you tell us what these social determinants of, of health are? I know you, you've sort of mentioned a few of them over the course of this, uh, this uh, discussion, but it would be helpful for people to understand that, you know, you mentioned happiness and a few other things. Maybe it would be helpful to understand what all of these social determinants are. Thank you. So social determinants is like an evade you love, for example. So, um, so Rhode Island is one of the first indi industrialized state in the U.S. So they dumped a lot of waste, a lot of pollution all around the state. Now, when you look at a cancer incidence, um, the cancer incidence in Rhode Island, where the state where I live, um, some county where the incidence is like a number one in the country. And if you look around, and there were industries before there in that area, right? So same way, when somebody is working at a, a cotton mill and they are constantly inhaling pollution, um, so where do we live makes a whole lot of difference. And uh, the pollution is one of the major drivers. And the family where you live, whom you are living with, um, what do you eat? Uh, and uh, so your genome is going to contribute so much. And where you live, all these various factors is what is going to add more complexity to it. So the social determinants of health is nothing but understanding your social uh, environment and all the factors which can contribute. Somebody has a BRCA1, and they, they live in a worst social uh, determinants of health environment, they are going to add, they are going to make it a tumor faster than somebody who lives in a better SOTH, which is social, uh, SDOH, social determinants of health or environment. So many factors. One thing I could even say, for example, in olden days, we all had A2 milk, which is the, uh, the milk which is supposed to be less inflammatory. But now, so the A1 milk, the cow which produces A1 milk, they produce five times more than the cow which produces A2 milk. So everybody switched for the economic purpose to an A1 milk. So you get only A1 milk and you go to a store. But A1 milk is more inflammatory. That triggers all kinds of problems. So we, the farmer or whoever, the person who's making money is able to make more money but that person also drinking that A1 milk mm. and having all health-related problems. So one has to draw a line. Do I want to make more money or do I want to have a good life? So it's it's a yeah, it's a complex social dynamics. I absolutely I think you know, you know, when you look at you know, I used to often write that your health outcome is determinant on environment, your lifestyle, and your genetics. So I think, you know, your social determinants, a lot of it is the environment, not just in terms of physical environment, but also your social environment that you live in, because culturally there might be some norms that maybe you're, you're following. That could be one. I think you mentioned about Rhode Island being an industrial area, but even in, in India, I think there is a particular train, I remember, that is called the cancer train, because from a particular location, there were, you know, there was part of it was the environment. And I think you know, that uh, would come to even my hometown uh, called uh, Bikaner, and that was called as the cancer, it's called as a cancer train, right? So it comes to Punjab and a few other areas. And part of it, it was 
primarily environmental. It was not that people in those areas had higher genetic risk, but it was it was also environment that, that caused that. So maybe we'll move on to the next round of this. I know you you uh, we will we are almost at the hour, so I wanted to take it to the next, unless you want to maybe add something before. No? Okay. So um, this is something I ask every every guest. Um, in, in your opinion, what is prevention? Or how would you prevent something? So it's very important to have a knowledge, right? You cannot prevent unless otherwise you have a knowledge. So knowledge is a fundamental to everything. So for example, am I prone to develop a cancer? One, so for example, doing a genomic testing will help to get that information. So once you know you are not or you are in, so once that information is cleared, ask a question that why I am doing what I'm doing mm -hmm. rather than blindly following somebody said that, you know, even if it is a doctor. So I, I went to a doctor. This is just a small incident. I went to a doctor and then it said, the doctor said, I need a vitamin D. And uh, I asked the, the doctor, do you know? And the, and the doctor asking me to take a very high dose of vitamin D, very high dose. I said, why? He said, that's what is recommended. I asked the doctor, do you know whether vitamin D is water soluble or fat soluble? The doctor said, I don't know. And uh, didn't even know. So you know if it is a water soluble, if you take any dose, it will get excreted through the urine. If it's a fat soluble, it has to be converted into water soluble by liver and then it has to get excreted. So it's very important to kind of pay attention to the details. So, so fat soluble, I would prefer to take what is necessary for the day rather than big dose because you are getting loaded with so much of vitamin D until it gets excreted. So things like that. So it's very important to kind of pay attention to the details and, and then through that one could lead a normal healthy life. Uh, so for prevention, understand the science behind it. Need not be in a very, you read a science paper, but you know, having using a simple common knowledge, uh, one could get that. Absolutely. I, I agree. I think, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, papers that talk about toxicity because of high doses of, of vitamin D and, and other such, um, such cases that we see. Now, the next question is, what is your secret to healthy aging? Because you look the same as I remember 20 years ago. So, what what is your what are your secrets to healthy aging? Thank you. I you know uh, you know my wife is uh, very much into nutrition. Um, she does uh, uh, quite a lot of research on um, you know balanced diet, the microbiome. Uh, so I would give a lot of credit to my wife, uh, and uh, so plus you know controlled calorie and what kind of calorie. Right, whether you're getting a calorie from an ice cream or you're getting a calorie from a brown rice, it's a two different thing. Um, it's very important to watch out the calorie, uh, how much one consumes. Um, um, you know, the Western diet is very addictive, um, so we try our best to avoid. Um, you know, try to eat healthy. So uh, that's a the secret plus exercise. Uh, and then, you know, not to get stressed too much about what goes on around uh, everywhere. So try our best to kind of take some time off 
and uh, do the right thing. Absolutely. Live like a normal human being. Yes. <laughs> Again. So I, I think, you know, it's it's very hard, especially when you go to like a, an American uh, grocery store. And now actually even in India, because the choices that you are getting are so many in terms of processed food and, and in terms of different kinds of things that might have a lot of stuff hidden into there. So it's kudos to be able to understand and, and then be able to implement those. Um, so what is digital health? Is there a thing called digital health? And, and what do you think that is? So I think that's the next wave. Digital health is kind of new. You're basically adding an AI component to your um, um, health. So the one of the uh, things which I learned recently is something called a Gemini, mm -hmm. where they're trying to create a digital of you, um, a replica of you. Um, uh, so in a digital health, you know, you, you are kind of having, um, um, number one, AI built your own lot of information put together and create uh, about, uh, information about you. And then somebody understanding that information, helping you. So in a digital health, you know, you have a combination of all this, uh, uh, getting help and knowing who you are. That's that's great way of putting that. Um, so what are, I'm sure you've heard a lot of myths, right? whether it's in molecular, whether it's in cancer or anywhere else. Are there any fun ones that you remember that you've heard people talk about in terms of myths that are propagated as being true in, in, in medical or, or healthcare? Um. Can you just reframe that? So um, what are some of the myths that you like, which are not true, but people constantly say, for instance, I think uh, I've, a lot of times the doctors talk about, uh, you know, how, you know, you know, especially gynecologists, you talked about how you, what you're supposed to eat, what, what you're supposed to do during childbirth could be some example of myths. In cancer, there might be myths, right? Like people think that this is true, but it is not necessarily true. So I... Thank you. So at some point, you know, nobody believed that immunotherapy will work. Mm -hmm. Nobody, you know, immunology was like, a, you know, kept as something which, you know, never thought that you can cure melanoma today, right? Because some time ago, I remember many people saying um, uh, they focused on a tumor cell but not on immune cells because they felt immune cells has nothing to do with the tumor. There are very few who believed it, but many did not. But today, um, that discovery not only got a Nobel Prize, but it's changing, the transforming the lives of so many people and people become a cancer free, not you know getting a tumor relapse later, they're just becoming a cancer free. So that's one of the things which I have seen we thought that it's not going to work, uh, or it's not even playing a role in this process. Now it's transforming the okay. cancer care. Well, absolutely, I think uh, it, it has totally changed. And maybe you know, what are the kinds of immunotherapy? If, if maybe that you can tell us. I know this was not supposed to be a more this thing about immunotherapy, but it's a it's a it's a brand new area where I think a lot more. And it's, I think, more happening in the U.S. rather than in India, 
Um, so you mentioned that you know the immune cells are are basically coming to your rescue in some form. Um, maybe if you can tell us a little bit more about that. So in a tumor, so let's say a normal cell becoming a cancerous, as soon as that happens, um, the immune cells come to that site to stop the tumor cells. So it does, they do. Um, but at some point, the tumor grows bigger and bigger, and then it switches the microenvironment, it's called immune microenvironment, from tumor suppressor to immune suppressor. So there are a lot of immune cells uh, which are not tumor killing, they become a tumor promoting. So how this happens, right? So it's kind of a, a chronic inflammation, which happens, the tumor is considered as a chronic inflammatory wound. That's the way some people claim, uh, which is true. So when you have a chronic inflammation, um, the immune cell's job is to come and kill anything bad. On a normal day, when the killing is over, you need to come and stop the immune cells, say, now you are done your job, it's time to stop. So there is a mechanism in a normal day. But in a cancer, that it's a time that you need to stop, that signal is lost. Sorry, the other way around. When the, when the time comes, you need to stop. Instead, um, that signal is permanently turned off. So therefore, the immune cells comes there but it forgets its need to kill the tumor cell because it's got a signal from the tumor cell saying hmm. you don't have to kill. The job is done. So that's called a PD-1, PDL-1 or many such communication between tumor cells and immune cells. We have many such communication. So what immunotherapy does is that that communication has been broken by something called immunotherapy or antibody-based therapy. So you break the communication. Now the tumor is no longer telling the immune cells that the job is done. Rather, the job is still need to be done. So now the immune cell kill the tumor cells. You break that communication. That's all one is doing. So there's also CAR T cell where, again, the T cells going and killing a tumor cell. But for that, the CAR T cell technology, you could say, imagine you want to kill um, people with let's say black color hair i'm just giving that as an example so you have a t cells for the black color hair and then it'll go and kill everyone who has a black hair so same way in a tumor you need to have a specific antigen it's called antigen a small signal in any tumor cell which has that signal and this t cell can recognize that signal and kill that tumor cells so that's a car t cell so there are also using a various uh, uh, immune cells, you, you can use the cell-based therapy. Um, so this is a various type of uh, immune therapy, which right now in practice, but the most common one is breaking the communication. Um, it's called immune checkpoint blockade therapy. That's, that's great. I think I, I, you explained everything so in nice and simple terms that I think that's um, kind of like, you know, it, it is always nice to ask you all these complex things to explain those. And I think that's the whole purpose of Genomic Gapshap. So thank you for uh, explaining all these complex topics in, in very, very simple terms. So I'll now move to the rapid fire. 
and and I don't think you know any of the questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you different ones now. <laughs> um, so, so if if you were to describe cancer in one word, what would that be? It's an enemy can be fought. Okay, that's a good one. Um, what is um, the most common complaint about you by your friends? I work too much. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you a morning or an evening person? I think I know the answer, but... I'm an evening person, but I came morning for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, what what hobbies do you have other than molecular biology, cancer, and, and, and anything to do with, with the lab? So I travel a lot. I prefer like to travel around the globe. Uh, for example, last month I was in Germany driving on an autobahn. Uh, you know, going like as fast as I could. Uh, and then, you know, went to a, a, a mountain, just went on a, a hiking um, in one of those Swiss Alps. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to be in outdoor uh, when I find time. That's great. So was that your favorite place to go to or, or do you have a special place that you like to try? I, I, I like to travel various parts of the world and uh, learn, um, you know, uh, I've been to China many times, I've been to various parts of the world, and then you, know, you go and see and learn how people live and uh, what do they eat. You know, I used to think that pizza uh, or, you know, the way we make pizza in the US is a little different than the pizza made in Italy. You know, only when you go there and eat the pizza in Italy, you realize that how different it is. And so we like to live the local life, uh, live there for some time, you know, be part of the community, learn from them. That's that's great. I think it's always nice to learn from different places and, and continue to grow. So one last question. How do you continue to be so curious all the time? I don't know. Maybe it's in the genes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like, you know, I like to find how things work and uh, I enjoy that. Um, that's what is kept uh, uh, keeping me going. Um, in the morning, you wake up, you know, constantly that goes on in the background, like how, how, why, and how, and uh, it helps. Absolutely great. So, thank you so much. I think it has been a really great episode. We've had lots of discussions on some very complex things, but you've explained them in very simple terms. So, thank you. I think cancer is not an easy topic to for for most people to understand. So, it is very nice and can be broken down at the cellular level, but you know, you've also created a lot of nice analogies for people to understand. Thank you for all the great work that you have done. I think that has also created a lot more over the last 20 years. You mentioned that paper was done sometime you know, early, almost 15, 20 years ago. So I think since then, all the great work you have done, thank you for, for doing all of that. And hopefully we'll see a lot more happening from your lab that is coming in and as well from all the companies that you've created. So thank you and thank you for being on Genomics Culture. Thank you. I just want to thank you. This is a great initiative and a great idea. Um, it's a great service what you're doing. And uh, in addition to providing the genomic sequencing through your Map My Genome, this is one of the very, very uh, key contribution. I thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Okay.